Hello everyone, and thank you again for listening to the Saga of World War II and Cass's Belly Project. In this episode, we continue the run-up to Pearl Harbor and discuss Japan's strategic dilemma. I know I fell behind by another week, but the show will go on, if at a reduced pace, for now. I don't have much of a preamble this time, so let's just dive right in. Episode 16, Japan Prepares for War. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. As summer gave way to fall in the latter half of 1941, the Empire of Japan was in a precarious position. Newly imposed sanctions by the United States, Britain, and the Netherlands were starving the home islands of desperately needed materials and resources. The newly appointed Prime Minister, Hideki Tojo, had promised to continue negotiations with the United States in order to end the embargo, but he did not feel compelled to restrict those negotiations to diplomatic means. What could not be gained at the bargaining table would be gained by force. Tojo and his fellow militarists in power in Tokyo not only believed war to be a viable option, but were enthusiastic for it. It was quite obvious that the war would be fought at sea, but that did not concern them. Never mind that this war would be fought against the navies of both the United States and Great Britain. The Japanese military calculus was not as boneheaded as it may seem to modern eyes, though. In retrospect, it seems obvious that the industrial might of the United States would beat Japan into submission. But this was by no means clear at the time to the Japanese or the Americans. Japanese military planners felt they had a litany of advantages. First, they would be fighting on their home turf. They could fight a strategic defense in depth. The United States Navy would have to penetrate three island chains to reach the heart of the empire. First, the outer chains of the Marshall and Solomon Islands. Then the second line consisting of the Dutch East Indies and the Carolines. Finally, there were the Philippines, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa, The Japanese were skeptical that the Americans could stomach such a long and brutal campaign. All the while, the Japanese would have access to internal lines of supply and communication. The second major advantage that the Japanese counted on was that of surprise. They believed that the ferocity of their initial offensive could seize the initiative for them to such a degree as to paralyze the U.S. and her allies. Allied garrisons in the Pacific were weak, undermanned, and afterthoughts. The Japanese would easily overrun them and push their enemies even further from their shores. They also believed that the resources seized would put them at a logistical advantage, especially the spoils from capturing the Dutch East Indies. Third, the Japanese major rival in the East, the Soviet Union, was currently being absolutely pummeled by Germany and appeared to be at the brink of collapse. 
they would surely pose no threat. By that same token, the British were also unlikely to offer much resistance, offering them their fourth advantage. Though the Royal Navy was the largest and best in the world, it was stretched thin across the globe. The majority of its vessels were tied up in the North Atlantic, fending off U-boats. What remained guarded convoys moving about the rest of the world's oceans. There was a small fleet harbored in Singapore and the paltry Royal Australian Navy, but they were token forces, which the Japanese discounted almost out of hand. Of all these assumptions, only one would prove to be completely false, that Americans lacked the fighting spirit and willpower to exercise a long, grueling island campaign. They were right that they held a strong geographic position. Their assessment of the Soviet Union was essentially correct. The Russians would only declare war on Japan when the conclusion was already determined. The Japanese were right about the British fleet being stretched too thin to effectively operate in the Pacific. Unfortunately, the one that mattered most was the only one they got fatally incorrect. The Japanese underestimation of the United States was a negative result of the elites consuming their own propaganda. They drank their own Kool-Aid. For a decade, they had been feeding the line that the United States was effeminate and weak, that Americans were weak and obsessed with luxury. Any criticism of dogma or critical thought about American capabilities were censored and tossed aside in favor of the party line. One of the most vocal critics of the state propaganda was Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, the man who would begin Japan's disastrous war with America. He had studied in the United States and had a more authentic understanding of American culture. He knew that the only way to defeat America was to utterly destroy her armed forces and dictate terms at the point of a bayonet. He also knew that this was impossible. The Japanese were full of themselves after beating up on weak old powers like China and Russia, but they never faced a youthful, strong opponent like the U.S. He also understood that the myth of superior Japanese spirit could not stand up to America's greater population, natural resources, or oil supply. On September 19, 1941, he outright stated that, quote, Japan cannot vanquish the United States, therefore we should not fight the United States, end quote. In some ways, Yamamoto was the anti-Tojo. Tojo was a product of the army and a rabid consumer of anti-American ideas. Yamamoto had come up through the Navy and was a sober realist. It's a little cliche, but you might even say that Tojo was the leader Japan deserved, whereas Yamamoto was the leader Japan needed. Hideki Tojo was one of seven children born into a former samurai family that had taken on the life in the new Japanese army. His father was a career soldier whose service often took him away from home, leaving him to be raised mostly by his mother. Like many other men we have discussed, young Hideki's mother was doting and caring. Perhaps this was a result of the boy's size. He would only ever reach a full height of 5 feet 2 inches and weighed only 115 pounds. After his two brothers died in their minority, he was bound by tradition to enter into the service like his father. As a child, Hideki, like many of the other men we have profiled, was quick to fight and often found himself in brawls with his classmates. Not a poor student, but not a particularly gifted one either, he enrolled in a military prep school at age 15. While there, he adopted a Spartan lifestyle, eschewed luxury and comfort for hard work. While there, he achieved the marks necessary to enter into a service academy. In 1905, he graduated and commissioned into the infantry. He had hoped to fight in the Russo-Japanese War to prove his mettle, but it ended before he had the chance. He seethed at the Americans who he believed, arbitrarily, 
had stolen Japan's honor by denying them greater victory. His career in the army progressed smoothly. He served in Manchuria, then entered into the War College and graduated in 1915. After the First World War ended, he was posted as a military attaché in Switzerland and Germany. He came to admire the Germans while in Europe, especially for their ability to withstand the indignities forced on them by the Versailles Treaty. He also appreciated the Germans' formal and humorless sensibilities. He contrasted this with his experience of Americans, whom he met while on his journey to Japan. He thought Americans too fond of luxury, and that this made them soft. He acknowledged their cleverness and knack for innovation, but thought they lacked toughness. Over the following decades, until he steadily climbed the ladder of the Japanese army, holding the requisite positions and meeting the various requirements, until 1935, when he arrived back in Manchuria as head of the Kempentai, the secret police. Unlike the NKVD or the Green Police in Germany, the Kempentai concerned themselves most with counterintelligence work. As head of the Kempentai, Major General Tojo was thorough. He compiled dossiers and secret profiles of everyone he could find that might pose a threat to the Japanese occupation of Manchuria. Tojo was in Manchuria when the attempted coup of 1936 happened. Led by junior officers in Tokyo, they had hoped that by ejecting the old, corrupt influences of business, they could run Japan as an even more militant junta. Unfortunately for the conspirators, the plot was foiled and the old government remained. Several of the men were executed, but most exiled to Manchuria are given light prison sentences. The ones sent to Manchuria were actually welcomed for the most part. The men knew that the conspirators were of their own. This welcome was short-lived, however. In 1937, Tojo was promoted to lieutenant general and made chief of staff of the Kwangtung army. He had little sympathy for the plotters and did not particularly appreciate their efforts. Back in Nippon, Prince Kanoye was made head of government. Just weeks later, the Marco Polo Bridge incident occurred, precipitating the Second Sino-Japanese War. The Kwantung army thrust itself into battle, and formations were rushed over the Sea of Japan to reinforce them. In his one and only battlefield command, Tojo led his element on a flanking movement around Beijing. His field time was short-lived, however, for he was soon recalled to Tokyo to serve as Minister of War. As Minister of War, Tojo became the preeminent representative of the army in the ongoing debate over which direction Japan should expand its empire. The army favored a northern route through China and Siberia into the Soviet Union. The navy advocated for a southern route expanding into Indochina, Indonesia, and Oceania. The army obviously preferred the northern route because it placed the onus on them. The navy would be the subordinate force, mostly acting as a shuttle between the home islands and continental Asia. The admirals advocated for the southern route, not only because it would place them as the premier service, but also because there was no way Japan's 70 million people could possibly contend with the vastly larger populations of China and the Soviet Union. Ultimately, the decision was imposed on Japan by events on the ground. When the Russo-Japanese border conflicts kicked off, the Japanese were forced to contend directly with the Red Army. After the Battle of Kalkangol, the Japanese were forced to acknowledge that the northern route was doomed. They couldn't contend with the Red Army in a protracted land war, so the southern strategy won out. It would take time for this realization to sink in, however. Tojo was still dead set on the northern strategy, and gathered a group of the nation's wealthiest industrialists together to convince them of the merits of the northern strategy. 
After an hour of berating the industrialists about patriotism and loyalty to the emperor, in the form of supporting the army and the northern strategy, he allowed them to leave, believing they were thoroughly code. They in fact were not. Instead, they immediately went to the press, who subsequently informed the world how Tojo had harangued them and stepped out of line. Prince Kanoye demoted Tojo to Inspector General of the Air Force. Following this incident, Kanoye was removed from power, and a series of new premiers led the government for 18 months. In July of 1940, Kanoye returned to power with Tojo. In the intervening period, Tojo had grown to see the wisdom in this southern strategy, and so adopted it. He now had the backing of the generals, having come from the army, and the admirals for having adopted their plan, and thus had the backing to become premier. With Tojo in place as head of government, war with the United States was almost inevitable. He would not immediately begin antagonizing the Americans, though. Instead, he gave overtures for conversation and diplomacy. However, this commitment to diplomacy was certainly questionable, especially considering he had set in motion a secret plan to launch a sneak attack on America's Pacific fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor. The man he chose to plan this attack was in some ways Tojo's antithesis. He wasn't a Kool-Aid-drinking, marionette, true believer, but instead a thoughtful realist who understood Japan's limitations as well as America's strengths. In many ways, Isoroku Yamamoto was very similar to his counterpart, Hideki Tojo. Both men were small, even by Japanese standards, Yamamoto being only 5'3". Both thrived in Spartan environments and preferred Spartan accommodations. Unlike Tojo, however, Yamamoto was born into a lower-class family, but was adopted by a powerful clan after his parents died. Born Isoroku, literally meaning 56, to Kano, after the death of his parents, the Yamamotos adopted him to ensure a male heir as is common practice in Japan. His adopted family raised him well, and when the time came, he took the entrance exam to enter the Naval Academy. He was accepted and excelled. He graduated 7th in his class, just in time for the Russo-Japanese War and the Battle of Tsushima. During the battle, he served aboard the cruiser Nishin, which was struck by Russian shells, one of which knocked him unconscious. In addition to knocking him out, the explosion also severed two of his fingers from his left hand. One more, and it would have been deemed medically unfit for service. Following the war, he continued his military career and education. Fatefully, during the First World War, he was assigned to study foreign affairs as well as naval aviation. In 1919, he was assigned to Boston to study English. While there, he not only mastered English, but also developed a few other passions. He became fascinated with studying oil and its new place in modern war. He correctly identified it as the single most important resource available to any commander, especially naval commanders. He also learned to play poker and taught his American counterpart Shoji, a Japanese chess analog. After his two-year stint in the U.S., he returned to lecture at the Japanese Naval College for two years. Following that, he traveled with the naval vice minister on a nine-month tour of Europe and the United States. By 1924, he had achieved the rank of captain and was a rising star. He had ingratiated himself with the aviation arm by taking them seriously and developing naval aviation theory. In 1926, he returned to the U.S. as a naval attaché in Washington, where he changed the office's focus from intelligence gathering to theory development. He was one of the first naval commanders to see the potential in naval aviation, and was an early proponent of it. 
His command of the English language and skill at poker made him a favorite among the American officers in Washington, and he enjoyed hashing out the more esoteric points of naval strategy with them. Yamamoto's intimate knowledge of American life and naval customs no doubt contributed to the success of his raid on Pearl Harbor. Sunday morning was chosen precisely because he knew that was the moment the fleet would be most vulnerable. Only a skeleton crew would be on watch, and the rest would either be in church or sleeping off their hangovers. The composition of his own forces was equally important, however. The task force would consist of 30 ships in total, six of them being carriers, bringing 423 planes. The force was escorted by two battleships, two heavy cruisers, and ten destroyers. The rest consisted of colliers and other support vessels. In command for the operation, he placed Vice Admiral Nagumo. Nagumo wasn't chosen for any special capacity in naval air operations, but rather because he was simply next in line for command. This isn't to say that he was incompetent, just that the Navy had not had time to mature specialists. Fortunately for him, two junior officers had been raised as specialists in naval air operations, Commanders Genda and Fuchida. The two were an effective pair. Genda was the innovator. His role in the duo was to come up with ways to overcome their obstacles. The main obstacle in Pearl Harbor was the shallow depth of the waters there, no more than 40 feet. Japanese torpedoes ran deeper than that, and so would uselessly bury themselves in the mud if used as they were in the attack. Genda experimented with several ideas, but ended up landing on a wooden tail fin that increased buoyancy. That way, the torpedoes wouldn't sink as deep and be able to strike their targets. Then Fuchida took the idea and began running his pilots through maneuvers to perfect their use. He took his men to Kagoshima Bay, which resembled Pearl Harbor in terms of infrastructure and geography. There, they practiced using their new fish. The other problem the pair had to overcome was the American practice of double mooring ships. This meant half of the vessels docked would be protected by the outer vessel at the same mooring. To get around this, they decided to launch high-altitude bombers carrying single 1,800-pound naval shells to ensure they could penetrate the battleship's thick deck armor. The ultimate goal was to reduce the Pacific Fleet by at least 20 to 25%. Oddly though, the US Navy had effectively done that on its own. With the U-boat war ramping up, Roosevelt instructed the Navy to transfer vessels to the Atlantic to engage in convoy escort duties. In May 1941, four battleships, the carrier Yorktown, four cruisers, and 17 destroyers sailed east from Pearl Harbor. That was no token force. So why did Japan go ahead with the attack? Their goal had already been met. The answer is mostly that Japan had already decided on its course of action. Besides, the Pacific Fleet could have vessels transferred to it just as easily as they were transferred away, and the Japanese planners still felt they needed to deliver a fatal blow to the Pacific Fleet to give themselves the initiative they needed to seize terrain. Additionally, sneak attack had served them well in 1894 and 1904, so why not use it again? And it wasn't as if the Americas wasn't justifiably exerting pressure on Japan. They had imposed an oil and steel embargo on the country, and on July 26, 1941, took multiple actions to sanction Japan for its offensive and belligerent foreign policy. On that day, President Roosevelt closed the Panama Canal, which still belonged to the United States, to all Japanese vessels, and activated the Philippine military into American service. In the 1940s, the Philippines were still an American protectorate and their armed forces could fall under the command of the United States government. 
It was American policy to call the Philippine Armed Forces to service in case of a Pacific conflict, and to rush the Pacific fleet there to begin establishing a fortress and supply center in the western Pacific. When the president took this action, the Japanese concluded that war was now inevitable. Of course, this was kind of arbitrary. The isolationist spirit was still strong, and no one in the U.S. thought war was inevitable themselves. The Japanese probably could have continued to rampage their way across the Pacific without much more than a token resistance by the Americans. The main roadblock would have been the Philippines, but everything from Indochina to Singapore to the Solomon Islands would have been ripe for the picking. Japanese confidence that they could knock America out of the war as soon as it began, their hubris is what brought America into the war. Despite their conclusion about the inevitability of war, the Japanese kept up negotiations in Washington. They would make hardline proposals, which would be immediately rebuffed by Secretary of State Cordell Hull, a resolute Tennessean. They told the Secretary that if America continued to embargo Japan, that their hand would be forced and a war would result. He angrily replied that blame would lay solely at the feet of the Japanese. The diplomats in Washington were genuinely kept in the dark about their plans for Pearl Harbor, though. This proved to be a massive boon to the Japanese plan for Pearl Harbor because the diplomatic code had been cracked by the U.S. naval intelligence. Every time the Japanese came to the bargaining table, Hull already knew what it was they were proposing and how to respond, and he also knew that war was growing ever more unavoidable. On November 10, 1941, Ambassador Nomura presented Proposal A to the United States, which essentially demanded that the U.S. cease its economic sanctions against the Empire of Japan. A deadline for response was set to November 25th, the same day that Admiral Nagumo set sail from Japan with his fleet toward Pearl Harbor. In response, the U.S. demanded that Japan leave the tripartite pact with Italy and Germany. On November 15th, the Japanese wired their embassy instructions on how to properly destroy cipher machines. The State Department was understandably alarmed. This prompted the Japanese to offer Proposal B, a slightly less hardline version of Proposal A. The United States, desperate for time and options, offered the Japanese a three-month amnesty period with limited trade. The deal was dead on arrival, though. The Japanese would not accept it, and Chiang Kai-shek vetoed it. Then Magic, the American codename for its deciphering system, decoded a disturbing message. The Japanese were issuing a drop-dead date of November 29th, after which all negotiations would cease and events would be set in motion that could not be undone. Alarm bells sounded with the U.S. diplomatic corps and military. Roosevelt assembled his war cabinet, and they all agreed that war was on the horizon, but no one knew when or how it would start. Then, a Japanese invasion fleet departed Shanghai, likely bound for the Philippines. Was this where the war would begin? The commander of the Pacific Fleet, Admiral Kimmel, and his army counterpart, Major General Walter Short, were warned that hostilities in the Pacific were imminent and to prepare. The message they received ended with the following, quote, Consider this dispatch a war warning, end quote. Meanwhile, the Japanese fleet was positioning itself for attack. A rendezvous date of November 26th had been set for Nagumo's task force. Over the course of several days, the 30 vessels involved departed their home ports and rallied in the Kuril Islands. November 26th was not some arbitrary date. It was quite deliberate. As we discussed earlier, Yamamoto wanted to, the attack to occur on a Sunday morning, but there were other reasons as well. For one, the attack needed to occur as soon as possible, 
Every day that passed, the U.S. military power grew, and the Philippines became that much more fortified. Second, the North Pacific is racked by severe storms in winter, and becomes almost unnavigable. Third, with each passing day, the Japanese consumed that much more of their military materiel. Fourth, the full moon would coincide with December 6th, which would allow for greatest nighttime illumination for nocturnal operations. Finally, the army wanted to begin their invasions before the monsoon season began. For these reasons, the pressure was on Nagumo to carry out Yamamoto's plan. In the days before the attack, he was a nervous wreck. Anxiety over the fate of the attack gripped him, and he worried about everything that could go wrong. What if the Pacific Fleet was not in harbor? What if winter storms delayed him, or caused his flyers to be lost on the return journey? What if the new American B-17 sortied and bombed his fleet in retaliation? His chief of staff, Admiral Suzuki, was able to calm his nerves by reminding him of how much preparation had gone into the operation, and by offering him a few glasses of sake. Kimmel, by concentrating on the southwest, left the U.S. forces in Hawaii vulnerable to attack from the northwest, where Nunugumo would actually strike from. Short, by clustering his planes to protect against sabotage, made them even better targets for bombing. Though a strike on Hawaii was not determined to be the enemy's most likely course of action, it certainly was his most dangerous, and more could have been done to protect the Pacific fleet there. Hindsight is twenty twenty, though, and it's too easy to Monday night quarterback 70 years hence. Admiral Kimmel and General Short were suffering no such anxieties, however. They had received the message of war warning, but interpreted it to be a general warning for the whole Pacific region and did not believe Hawaii to be under imminent threat. They believed that a strike on the Philippines was the most likely enemy course of action, and prepared to begin ferrying men and aircraft there should war break out. They did take some measures to protect their forces in Hawaii, though. They feared submarine attack and established anti-submarine patrols. Kimmel began aerial reconnaissance of the southwest approaches, and Short arranged his aircraft to protect against sabotage. Unfortunately, neither took the two key steps that could have prevented the most damage. On the morning of November 26th, a heavy snow began to fall on the North Pacific. Japanese sailors peering through it could only just barely make out their sister ships. Through the white haze of falling snow, signal lamps could be seen gleaming. It was time. The fleet began its fateful journey eastward. It was a horrid journey. The North Pacific winter hammered their ships with massive swells and biting wind. Then the fateful message arrived. Climb Mount Nitake. 